So we are in a series uh, on the mountains. Uh, we're talking about the mountains of how God has used the mountains throughout Scripture. And again, this series concludes on Easter Sunday with Jesus on Golgotha, which is kind of a mountain, not really. It's more of a hill, um, but it works. So we're doing it. And so, uh, but we've seen uh, the first six weeks of the series, we've gone through mostly the Old Testament. It was so thrilling to get to show you Old Testament survey, kind of like how Israel has has gone through this, this history. And so maybe when you open your Bibles, you have a little bit more of a context uh, when you're reading the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel and 1 Kings and these obscure, maybe obscure books for you. But we saw, we looked at Mount Moriah and, and how God used that mountain to, um, to challenge and to test uh, Abraham. We looked at uh, Mount Sinai and how God used that mountain to uh, call out to Moses at the burning bush and to give the people, his follow, give the people of Israel the Ten Commandments where God reveals wisdom on the mountains. Uh, we, saw, we saw on Mount Ebal how God used the mountains to restore right relationship with his people, where people repented and restored, went back to the word of God, and they used a mountain to declare that time, um, declare that commitment. Uh, we saw last week on Mount Carmel where God used a mountain to, to prove himself as true um, before the prophets of Baal. He said, I am, I am the one true God. There is no other God before me. And so God used, again, a mountain to show his reality. And so with that, then, we, we wrap up our, our survey of the mountains in the Old Testament, and now we look to the New Testament for the next several weeks again, as I said, leading up to Easter. And it, it may not be a surprise to you, but I, it kind of was to me, I guess. I don't know what I was expecting. But every single mountain mentioned in the New Testament has one figure associated with it, and that is Jesus. So if, if, if you like Jesus, then church will be really good for you for the next couple of weeks because it's going to be a lot of Jesus. And so um, we're going to look at how Jesus, again, went to these mountains, these very significant mountains, and how God used these mountains in the life of Jesus and in the life of his followers. Uh, Jesus absolutely loved the mountains. I think it's so cool studying this and seeing this, and I hope you see it too. Um, Jesus loved the sea. Um, he, he liked the beach, but he did a lot on the mountains. Uh, it seemed like he was really drawn to the mountains, and, and for good reason. Um, today, uh, we're going to cover a lot of, a lot of verses. Um, so, so last week was long. I understand that. This week shouldn't be, okay? Shouldn't be. Um, but, so it shouldn't be long. It's the same amount of verses, though. It's a lot of verses. So if you're, if you're nervous, but last week I ended with like three apologetic applications, right? Big science and stuff like that. None of that this week, okay? So as we go through all that, just realize the application's much shorter, okay? You good? You happy? You satisfied? Okay, all right. You ever see uh, 24 with Jack Bauer? Is that his name, Jack Bauer? Is that his name? Yeah, there's like the no good, very bad, worst day ever movie, TV show. Like, and what is it? Was there a sound like a... I'm, Angie and I binge-watched it in Houston for a while. Uh, we, we found it on Netflix, and that's the only way to watch it. We'd, every, every time we'd finish, we are like, can you imagine? We had to wait a whole week to see the next one? <laughs> next one, please. You know, it was just like, you no know, commercials, just binge. And uh, it was a wonderful time. So uh, we got through like six seasons, and we're like, okay, we get it. Bad day, right? Um, but what, is there a, was there a, I think I remember a sound like a... Right before the commercial? You guys remember this? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so just put that in your head for this day. This is Jesus' Jack Bauer day. It's a horrible, it's not the worst day. I would say the worst day is the day that you go to the cross for the sins of humanity. Bad day. Second worst day, probably here. And it's interesting to see 
where Jesus wants to run, where he wants to get to the entire day because of this day. What also is interesting is you don't, we, don't see this, we don't see this as a day. Because we read the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, or that little break that the translators gave you in your Bible, or because you hear sermons chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and these little breaks, we don't often see this as a day. But this is one, you're going to be, I, maybe I was, blown away by all the things that happen on this day in the Gospel of Matthew. So, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. Verse 53. <laughs> if you remember back last year, I did a series called The Sermons of Jesus. We looked at just the sermons of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. As a matter of fact, when I was planning this series, I tried not to use the book of Matthew because I feel like I wore you out on it. But it's just, it does the best job of capturing the whole day. So we, I just went ahead and went for it and thought you'd forgive me. If you have a problem with the Bible, then you know, take it up with the big guy. All right, so... Um, so Matthew, uh, Matthew, so right after the, par- the Sermon of the Parables, remember that one for those of you who were here back then? The Sermon of the Parables, where he goes parable after parable after parable. That's where we pick up in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. First, first thing. So Jesus has just preached the, the, the sermon to the par- of the parables to his, mainly to his disciples, very, very small group. And then he goes from Capernaum, okay, which is down by the Sea of Galilee, up to Nazareth, which is his hometown, as we'll see in just a minute. It's about a six-hour walk. Okay? So he goes from there to Nazareth. Now, I was talking to a friend once. And, uh, and he was just, it just happened to be this week that I asked. And I said, hey, how's work going? And he said, it is the worst week of my year. I said, really? What's, what, what, how, why is it so hard? This is the week I have to prepare a presentation and stand up before a group of people and give it and talk to them about you know, the state of things. I have to give this you know, presentation. I have to write it out and go do all the math and all this stuff. And it's just, it's exhausting. And I was like... <laughs> I do that every week, <laughs> every week. So I'm just give you a little, I, I'm not asking for sympathy here. I love my job. I love what I do. Um, I enjoy it. But I want to bring you in a little bit because when it says Jesus preached these things, you're like, okay, I preach these things. No, 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 no. Okay. Thursdays. So come on in. Welcome to my life for just a second. Okay. On Thursday morning, kids go off to school. I stay home and I get to work early, as fast as I can. And I start working on this text, which has been planned. I, I don't wait till Wednesday to figure it out, or Thursday to figure it out, okay? I'm a year in advance. Right now, I'm, I'm scheduled through September, okay? Philippians is this summer. So I, I'm, I like a schedule, so I open up where I have a whole piece of paper on my desktop that tells me what Bible verses I'm preaching this week, and I open it up. I go, okay, that's it. I pull up my Bible software, pull that up. I go down to my library, pull out all the books I'm going to need, possible illustration books that might be useful, and I go up to this great, huge, comfy chair, and I stack, pack my books all next to me, and I have all my Greek and Hebrew software, and I'm ready to go. And I pray, and I start researching and researching and researching. And then I write with footnotes every week, an 8 to 10, 10 to 12 page paper. Let's just be honest, okay? You're like, it's not eight pages. It wouldn't take that long. You're right. So 10 to 12 pages with footnotes. My son's like, oh, so that's going to be useful one day? Maybe. All right. So 
Maybe. So anyway, so I, with footnotes, in case I ever want to write a book one day, I know I stole this from somebody. I don't get in trouble for plagiarism. So I always put the footnotes in there. So I, I type it all out, and that takes the whole day. Just doing language work, researching what the scholars say, studying all the aspects if, for this series, the geography, all of that, getting all of that together and organized, and I manuscript it. I write it like as if I'm talking to you, okay? I close it, put it away, go get a workout in, play with my kids. It's Thursday, then Friday comes. I usually get some work done, stuff like that. Saturday night, put the kids to bed. House is quiet. I open up my sermon. I've had a couple days to now think about it, think about some things I shouldn't say, some things I should say, and I go in there and I clean it up. I delete some stuff. I add some stuff. I look for points that are weak. I sure them up. Um, if something doesn't make sense, I make sure it makes sense, and I go in there and I clean it all up, and then I do this, this PowerPoint thing um, for you guys, okay? Close it down. Takes about an hour and a half, maybe two hours. Wake up early Sunday morning. I take the long manuscript and I strip it down because I'm not going to read it to you because that's boring, right? I don't want to be boring. It's my scare. I'm most scared of that, right? Not being funny is okay, but being boring is way worse, okay? So I, I strip it all down and I get to, the, I put these little lines in here just so I can look at them real fast and, and talk to you. So like this little line is, preaching is wonderful exhaustion. That's my line to tell, to tell you all this, right? And so, I, so I, I just put these little lines in here so I know exactly what I'm going to say and I can be able to say it because I've already manuscripted it. I've already worked through it. And then I'm going through it again Sunday morning and deleting stuff. I'm like, okay, I remember that. I can remember that. I can remember that. And I just work it through it. Then I get up here, come see you guys. I set this little Mevo thing up and then I get to talk to you. I hear about your life and I check on some of you because some of you got some stuff going on and, and we just chat and, and I enjoy every second. I shake your hands, hug your necks. Get this little microphone thing on, pray for you when you don't even know it. Sit there and, or sit over there and pray for the worship service. And I pray for your hearts, pray for God's presence to fall in this place, that his Holy Spirit will move mightily and that he'll prepare your hearts. I'm just constantly praying for you. And then I come up here and I sit down and I'm like, oh yeah, I need to pray out loud. And I pray out loud and then I start preaching. And then I pr I'll preach for a good 40 minutes. <laughs> and they say it's like running a 5K without the health benefits, right? So I, I, it's like all this adrenaline's flowing. I'm trying to remember things. I'm trying to, if, last week I said something. I was like, if you knew the things that were going through my head that I don't say, you'd be impressed. Like, it's amazing. So, I mean, you're just like, you're just, it's a, it's a go. It's an adrenaline thing. And I used to do multiple services, and so I would go back in my office, and I would sit down and eat a power bar, which I shouldn't have. Those are full of sugar. Don't ever touch those things. Uh, and then I would drink some water, hydrate coffee, go back, do it again. And it was great. I didn't mind. The adrenaline keeps you going. And then you get home. And that's when everybody gets to see the real Andrew, right? In fact, I left this morning. I said, Daddy's going to want a nap when he gets home. So don't expect me to play or, hey, Dad, you've been gone. <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's still Sunday, right? There's no big family meals. There's not, just, just put some bread in front of the kids and give me a couch, right? Because I'm exhausted, it's there's adrenaline flowing. There's things happening. I've, I'm trying to do things from memory. I'm, I'm talking to people. I'm praying with people. There's a lot going on, right? You're tired. Tomorrow morning, I'll be extra tired. It's just going to be that way. It just is, right? It's, I can't explain it. It's just what happens when we preach. Does it mean I don't like it? No, I love it. I, I like riding my bike for hours, but I get tired at the end. Right? It's, the same, it's that same thrill. It's like, I love teaching people God's word, but it can get really tiring. Jesus, it's his Monday morning. It's actually probably Saturday morning, and he is wiped out. 
He is wiped out. He's just preached to his disciples. He's emotionally exhausted, and then he hikes 18 miles, six hours, uphill from the Sea of Galilee to Nazareth. Spends the night, wakes up. So he's tired, but he's pushing through because he's on a mission, and he's only got a few years to fulfill it. So the next morning, he has a speaking engagement, and it's at the local synagogue of his hometown. Should be an easy one. Easy, soft pitch, no problem. These are my people. This is Nazareth. They love me. I grew up here, right? I used to work here. It's a small town. This is going to be great. We'll see. So that they were, let's see, let's go back to this. Um, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished. They loved his preaching and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not, this, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, four brothers? And are not his sisters with us? So he had sisters too, big family, huge family. Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did, and he did not do many mighty works here because of their unbelief. <laughs> Ooh, I am so blessed to be your pastor. I never, you guys are just like, you're so good to me. Like, I got like so many nice emails last week, no criticism. I used to pastor a criticizing church, it's the worst. And I read this, and like PTSD comes right back. I'm like, oh, right? They don't criticize his sermon. They're like, the sermon was great, but you, we got a problem with. Ah, oh, criticize the sermon. That's fine. I can do another one next week. It'll be better. But me? You criticize me? And they said, yeah, you. We, we don't like you, Jesus. There's, your sermon is a little too good. Maybe you stole it from somewhere. Maybe you're getting it from something else because it, we know who you are. We, your, your dad's a blue-collar guy. You don't have an education. You, you didn't grow up affluent. You're, he's just a carpenter, right? He's nobody special. Your mom, oh, we all know the story about your mom. She's a little girl who had the story about the shepherds and the angels when said she was pregnant by God. Yeah, we know her story. Remember? Even Joseph didn't believe it till he had an angel appear. So what do you think the town of Nazareth thought? So they thought, oh yeah, we know who your mom is. You got brothers. We used to see you guys wrestling in the streets. And you lift them up and throw them down. And, you know, teleport. You always cheated, right? <laughs> Imagine wrestling with Jesus. You're just like, like Darth Vader. <laughs> totally going to win every time. He's like Matrix. Okay. We saw it. We, we, you got your sisters. We know, we know your full family. You're too familiar for us. We know you. You're just, you're, you smell just like the rest of us. You look just like the rest of us. You're nobody special. You're, just, you're full of it. In fact, they say this word in verse 57, and they took offense. The word offense says this, no justice. Yes, they are offended. But the, he, the Greek word there is scandalizo, where we get our word scandal. You're creating a scandal. You're scandalous, Jesus. Not we're just offended by you. You're, you're scandalous. You're, you're duping us. You're pretending to be something you're not. You're selling us something that's not true. You are a fake. Whew. 
And then Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. It's an indirect quote from the book of Jeremiah. God tells Jeremiah twice, because you're a prophet, your hometown will hate you. Because you're a prophet, your own family's going to reject you. You're going to have to give people hard words from God, and they're going to turn you down. And Jesus is like, I know exactly how Jeremiah felt right now. It's exactly how I feel. The people I used to work for when I was a kid, the shop owners, the guys who, the people who babysat for us, the people who loved us, the people I, I waved hi to every single day in my small little town are now saying I'm a scandal and they don't trust me. So now he's tired. First he was tired, and now he is told he's, he's a scandal by his own hometown. He's completely rejected there. Horrible, isn't it? Oh, and his day's not even over yet. Matthew takes a little break from the narrative and turns our attention to, to something so we, can under, we understand the context of what's going to happen next in the day of Jesus. In Matthew 14, verse 1, it says this, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. So this is not, this is, all, this is like a, um, <laughs> if it was a TV show, there would be like a blurry thing or like a, a kind of a backstory, you know, it's, you're kind of getting filled in here, all right? So it's not happening at that time. Verse 2. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work at him. And the reader says, whoa, 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 whoa. John's dead? John the Baptist is dead? Like, that's, that's new to me. Because in Matthew, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that he's just imprisoned. And now you're telling me in Matthew 14, he's dead? I, 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 need, I need more information. And so, so just to understand this, after Herod the Great, who did, remember the Christmas story when uh, Herod the Great sends out the soldiers to go kill all the two-year-old boys in Nazareth? Remember that? Yeah. Uh-huh. No? Yes? I just told you how hard this job is. Are you not going to be with me? Right? Yes. It is. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So remember, okay, he dies in 4 BC. He dies. The kingdom split three different ways. The Herod that kind of gets all the attention in the latter years of Jesus is Herod Antipas. And he's the governor over Galilee. And so it's through him, he, see, he hears about Jesus and all these miracles, and he thinks, oh, I know why this is happening. This is happening because I killed John the Baptist, and John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and he's doing all these things. And so now the reader's like, whoa, wait a second. I didn't even know John the Baptist was dead. And so Matthew's like, oh, cool, let me fill you in, okay? Verse 3, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, brother's, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying, so he's preaching, John had been preaching out in the public square and letting people know, it is not lawful for you to have her. Uh, this is a violation of Leviticus 18.16 and Leviticus 20.21. So he, John the Baptist is out preaching and he's, he's taking on the government. He's getting political. And he's saying, Mr. President, Mr. Senator, Mr. Congressman, Miss Congressman, Miss President, Miss whatever. You are not supposed to do that. That is out of character. Now, this is a Jewish nation, and they should be operating in a, with Jewish principles. And John the Baptist is saying, you are not operating under Jewish principles, and I'm calling you out to the people. Well, Herod did not care for that. Verse 5, and though he wanted to kill him, put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So he says, I want to kill you, John, but I'm not going to because I'm politically savvy. So I'm just going to put you in jail, a very dark, dark, deep jail forever. 
where you will keep your mouth shut. That's what he does. That's why I don't preach, preach political sermons. That's what he does. Stop talking about my brother's wife. Verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced in, before the company and, pray, and pleased Herod. So he's so happy with her, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, <clears throat> Bradzilla, right? she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So we get our phrase, give me his head on a silver platter. This is from the Old New Testament. And the king was sorry because he's like, oh, I know politically this isn't going to be good. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And the head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. Are you crazy people? Who gives that to a girl? Goodness gracious. All right. And she brought it to her mother. That's the scene. That's what's happened. Verse 12. So just before I read verse 12, Jesus has just preached. He's exhausted. He wakes up. He goes early in the morning to the synagogue. There's more than 10 men gathered in order for it to be a, a legal uh, gathering. He preaches a sermon. They beat him up on his character, not his preaching, on his background, not his preaching. And he, he says, oh, just like Jeremiah, I'm never going to be accepted in this town. And he's heartbroken over this. Picture this. It's like 7.38 in the morning. He is stepping out of the walled door, and he, he's greeted by the disciples of John the Baptist. Verse 12. And the disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. He walks out the door. He's totally beat up, and then he finds the disciples of John the Baptist, and they say, Jesus, we are so sorry for your loss. He's like, what is it? Your cousin. Your cousin. The guy who knew you in the womb. The guy who was preaching about you before you got here. The guy who believed in you from the very beginning. The guy who always seemed to believe in you. He's been killed. He's been beheaded because he believed in you. He's dead. And this, this wrecks him. This is, the, this is the breaking point for Jesus. Verse 13 now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. It's a strange short verse where a lot happens. He's in Nazareth. There are no water. There's no water feature in Nazareth. There's no lake. There's no sea. There's no river. There's nothing. So he's, he goes right back to the Sea of Galilee in this verse. It's the, only way, it's the only way the verse works. It's a downhill walk, like I said, six hours back to Tiberias, which is going to be the closest border town of the Sea of Galilee for him. And he's going to get on a boat, and he's going to try and get away. So in this verse, that's what he, it's, a, it's a long verse. That verse. This verse probably takes six or seven hours to take place. By the time he gets on the boat, it might be two or three o'clock in the afternoon. Okay? And I picture it um, like Forrest Gump. You guys see Forrest Gump? You saw Forrest Gump, right? You're American, right? You know, he's like, I just went for a run. Remember that? I just went running, right? And nobody, he doesn't talk to anybody. He just runs. I just, I think Jesus, that's what I, that's why I see this verse. Like Jesus is like, I'm out. I need to get alone. This has been a horrible morning, right? And he just walks and everybody's just following him because <laughs> he's Jesus. And he's just walking. There's no words. There's no narrative. There's nothing. I'm just trying to get to a desolate place. 
verse 13b. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the town. So the crowds heard that Jesus was on the water, crossing the Sea of Galilee, and they hear about it, and they say, oh, we're, we're going to follow him. This is not hard to do. As a matter of fact, where Jesus is going, um, because it's a very famous place where he's going, it's pretty, it's pretty narrow shot across the Sea of Galilee. And so they, you, can, you could see the boat from the shoreline. And so they see Jesus from Tiberias getting the boat, probably by himself, and they, they're just like, we're just going to follow him. And the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And bigger, like, what are you doing? Oh, we're following Jesus. Oh, Jesus is out there. Oh, and bigger and bigger and bigger. And he's gonna he's gonna land right here. We can see where he's gonna land. Okay, and let's, let's keep on following him all the way around. So thousands of people are waiting for him when he gets there. Verse 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and this is Jesus, right? He's wiped out. He wants to be alone. He's trying to get to this desolate place. And he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. He gets off the boat. He's like, I want, not, this is a true minister's heart. There's nothing I'm more, I want more right now than to be alone, but these people need me. And so I'm going to, I'm going to care for them. And he heals them. Um, the word compassion is, is the, it's a, um, passion is to suffer for something. Co is to suffer with something, or to do something with. So he's like, he suffered with them. Like he's like, he just, he really felt their pain. Like, I, I just got to help these people before I can be by myself. Putting, again, here we see Jesus putting his needs aside, putting his desires aside to care for those who are in need. But that's not done because people get hungry. Verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. <laughs> I love that. Jesus is like, I know. We're trying to get alone all day. <laughs> it's like so funny. <laughs> Why are we out here? It's like, because I'm trying to get away from you people. <laughs> and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves in here and one fish that some boy bought because his mom packed a lunch and she's so smart. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and opened up the restaurant, We Shall Eat, by Jesus. Right? He becomes a, rest- becomes a restauranteer. He becomes, he becomes a pretty much a manager of a restaurant right now. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and, he, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. Now, I've never done a miracle. I, it sounds exhausting. Right? I've never done it. I can't say I claim it, but I think when Jesus was walking down the street one time, uh, a woman who had, been, who, had a, who had an illness, she's been bleeding for 20 years or something like that, 12 years, she touches him and he says, I felt power come out of me. Um, so Jesus, when miracles happened, he, he felt it. There's a feeling that comes with it. So it's not like, again, as we see these miracles take place, there is a, Jesus is fully God and fully human. There's a human element taking place here. And they all ate and were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So this is the feeding of the 5,000. We've gone from the parables of the Sermon of the Parables to to being denied in Nazareth, which is another famous part of Jesus' life, to the feeding of the 5,000, death of John the Baptist, all the same day. We're still on the same day, right? It's crazy. And everybody is satisfied. Matthew makes it so clear. Everybody's tummy is full. Everybody's joyful. They're happy. It's probably the best lunch they've, or dinner they've ever had because Jesus made it. Hello. 
right? I mean, it's just an amazing, everybody is so contented except Jesus. Jesus is still worn out. And honestly, that that 5,000 is just the men. Most scholars say it's about 25,000 people. Huge, double the size of Steamboat, gathered in an area on the grass, and he feeds them. It is absolutely amazing. Verse 32, immediately, (laughs) the book of Mark, the most commonly used word in the book of Mark is immediately. Matthew rarely uses it, but here he says it. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into a boat. (laughs) I can tell you guys what to do. (laughs) Get in that boat. That's what he does. Immediately, he made the disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side. This is, in fact, what's going to follow this scene. We're not going to get to it. It's Jesus walking on water. It's a big day. While he dismissed the crowd. So the disciples are in the boat. They're going across the sea. And he's, you know, he's, you know. You know how it is, right? Those of you who've ever managed a public place or been in a situation like this, maybe it's been a wedding or a party you hosted, and Jesus is shaking the last hand, hugging the last neck, kissing the last baby, hearing the last story. Every, people are just drawing from him and drawing from him and drawing from him, wanting more information from him, wanting more wisdom from him, and he's giving and giving and giving. And you can just kind of see the crowd dwindling with your mind's eye. And after he had dismissed, dismissed the crowds, Finally, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was alone. The worst, second worst day Jesus ever had. This is where he was. Not a bad view. I love showing you this picture so I can show you how green the desert is. The land flowing with milk and honey, people. It's nice, right? We think that's his view. We know where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. And so if you look around at the geography, the closest hillside is right there. And so he climbed to the top. It's very shallow. It's nothing. It's a mountain to them, but it's nothing to us, right? He climbs to the top of that, and he's finally alone. And what does he do when he gets alone? He prays. For the first time, we get to see him alone. And all day, all he's wanted to do is pray. The application is fairly simple we are to follow in the footsteps of Christ in this practice. I, I, I want to be extremely direct with you about a few things. Number one, <clears throat> the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus needed this. Jesus absolutely needed this. And what blows my mind is, <clears throat> Jesus was the Son of God, sent by God from heaven, born of a virgin, never sinned, had direct access with God all the time, But yet he needed to get alone and pray and be with God alone. And for some reason, we think as Christians, we don't need this. Like we think we can pull off this Christian walk without getting alone with God. We get alone, we're steamboat people. I get you. Don't worry, that's coming. But we need to to be intentional about getting alone with God because Jesus needed this. Why on earth would we think we don't need this? So Jesus, on on his second worst day, absolutely needed to be alone. We should not think any less of ourselves. We should think, oh my goodness, if Jesus needed this, I definitely need to do this. The second thing I want to tell you is, I've seen this too often, maybe up close and personal, so I'm going to try and, try and taper a little bit. But I am so sick of seeing my brothers and sisters in Christ follow the world's teaching when it comes to their bad days. What does the world tell you to do? The world tells you to self-medicate. 
I just need a drink. I just need a drink. I just need, a, I just need, a, I just need some weed. I just need to get high for a little bit. Right? I just need to be with, a, be with the opposite sex right now. I just need to get along with somebody else. Maybe that'll help me feel better. Or I just need to meditate on myself. The Buddhist message. Right? I need to think deeper, introspectively. Right? And I just keep seeing my, my brothers and sisters in Christ here in this town doing these things. And I'm like, why? Why do you keep going that route when there's a clear message in Scripture that that's not the way we get medicated? That's not the way we fix our bad days. That's not the pathway for the Christian. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to do what Christ did. Jesus, didn't, Jesus drank wine. He didn't say, oh, I just need a good Pinot tonight, a nice silky red. You know, he didn't do that, right? It's like, I need to get with God. I don't need a drink. I need to get with God, right? Yeah, Skate Church likes that, right? He didn't say, oh, where's, where's Mary? Where are my girlfriends, right? No, didn't need that. He didn't run to anything else. They don't make marijuana in Israel, so don't worry about it. He didn't run to anything else. He just ran to God. And I think we just we keep going the wrong way. Finally, I want to tell you this. Christianity does have rules, and those rules are a blessing from God, and they give us, they give us a clear path on how to live, how to live a good, clean life that brings glory to God and allows us to live to the fullest and feel life to the fullest. And we follow the teachings of God. Preachers love to teach on the rules of God because we want you to have those things. We want you to live that life that's so fulfilling, right? Oh, but Christianity is not about rules. Christianity is highly spiritual. And we in churches love the rules and we love the words, but sometimes you need to remember that what you're following is a Savior who is highly spiritual. And you too are filled by the Holy Spirit of God. And you are equipped to be extremely spiritual. And you need to access that spirituality. The, the, remember, the, Jesus came preaching in truth and grace. He came in spirit and truth. He came to give us both, spirit and truth, that we'd walk in both of those things. We can't just focus on truth all the time. Truth is wonderful. And spirit is truth, but we have to have spirit. There has to be a part of us that's introspective towards God, that's open to God, that's accessing the Holy Spirit, that's speaking to God, and God's speaking to you. There's, that's an element of the Christian life. And we shortchange it when we just focus on the words. Right? How would you feel if you knew, or if you thought, or if I said, all I do is research a bunch of scholars and look at a bunch of books and prepare a sermon? Do you pray? Oh, no. I don't need to pray. You just need truth. We want our pastor praying, right? Why do you want me praying? Because we want you spiritual. Why do you want me spiritual? Because that's what you're supposed to be. Why am I supposed to be that way? Because Christians are that way. Why aren't you that way? Stop being that way, right? So no, we're supposed to be spiritual people. There should be a prayer element to us, right, in every aspect. So finally then, how do we do this? How do we live this spiritual life that Christ led? Number one. Practice regularly. The mountaintop, I keep on, I, I did everything in my power to not make this 
like this, but I'm going to go ahead and go for it. Some, um, I've, this summer, I will have been married for 20 years to my first wife, <laughs> to Angie, and it's awesome. And uh, man, we, there's a richness that comes after 20 years of marriage. And those of you who've been married over 10 years know that. There's a struggle. Man, that first year, that first month, you're like, what have I done? You know, it's like so crazy. And there's just kind of this figuring out of things. And there's an awkwardness to the relationship at first. There just is. And the first date, I mean, oh my goodness. Don't even ask Angie what my line was, my pickup line. Oh my goodness. You're not allowed to know. You can ask her, but I'm not telling you. (laughs) But it's like, it's so awkward, right? Imagine... Whenever you go to the mountaintop, they're like, okay, yes, today I'm going to go to the mountain. I'm going to be with God, right? And God's been like, great, haven't seen you in like 10 years. And you're like, yeah, this is kind of awkward. Yeah, it's kind of awkward. You want to make it rich and deep? Learn to experience God in your living room first. And if you can experience God in your living room, then experiencing him on the mountain will be even way better. You know what I'm saying? So, how you God, Jesus had a great mountaintop experience because he was regularly with God. So, I'm going to tell you, this is very, very simple, right? We learned this, in, I learned this in college and try to, this is a habit of my life, okay? I want you to spend time with God every day if possible. If you don't have kids and if you're retired, you got no excuse, right? If you got kids, then you got excuses, but it should still be a part of your life. Like, you should miss it. She'd be like, I haven't, had, I haven't had time with the Lord lately. I need to, I need to carve that. I need to make sure I get back into that habit, back into that rhythm, that groove. So I want you to set apart a time. For me, it's before the kids get up. My kids get up at 7 o'clock. I get up at 6.30. I don't need a lot of time. Sometimes I get up a little late. It doesn't matter. It's not, this isn't a workout. Right? I don't have to have a certain amount of time. Right? It's not a religious thing. I just need to get with God. So I get up at 6.30. And I, and I go straight to my big, poofy chair, right? And I sit in it. I want you to have that. I want you to have a time. Like, I, maybe it's not for me. Maybe you're a night person. That's fine. You're crazy. That's, Jesus is there in the morning, but that's fine. You can get up to catch him on the back end. So, but there's, so maybe you're an evening person. Maybe it's lunchtime for you. Maybe it's a different time for you. But you have a time where you say, this is, this is my time. It's 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. And you carve it out. And you, and you sit and you have everything ready to go. So I have a little nook in this entertainment center we have. It's my nook. Nobody gets to touch my nook. In my nook is my Bible. And in there is, it's a journaling Bible. And I have a pen and my reading glasses, which my girls just broke. So, but it doesn't bother me. I'm still going to have my time with the Lord. I just will be slower, right? I'll be like, what does that say? All right. So I pull all of that out. And I sit down in my chair with my caffeine, because that's biblical, Sit down with a cup of coffee, house is quiet, not a soul is stirring, and it's just me and God. Just me and God. You need that. And so when I say, I'm going to go on the mountain, God's like, oh, the living room's been good, but I'm about to blow your mind. When I say, I'm about to leave town and just go have a a silent retreat with the Lord, God's like, oh, we're really going to get some work done now. Your heart's churned. You're primed. The pump is ready to go. All I have to do is hit the start button, and we're in. You don't have to say, oh, God, I wish I spent more time with you. I don't have to do any of that stuff. We're just, we're, we hop right on the drive, right on that on-ramp, and boom, 
on the highway. Me and God, it's awesome. But that's there because it's regular in my life. It was regular in Jesus' life. That's why I do it. And it should be regular in your life. A regular time of practicing God's presence. What do you do in that time? Read the Bible. Read the Bible. I don't like reading. Okay, let me send you a text message real fast. Did you catch that? You're going to read that. All right, I'm going to tell you what I told when I was a youth minister. My kids used to say that, so I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you this. Set a timer for one minute. Read your Bible for one minute. And they'd be like, I can do that. It's like, yeah, sure you can. Read your Bible for one minute a day. That's all I ask. And the teenagers would laugh, like, yeah, I can totally do that. No problem. Great. And they'd come to me next week. It's an amazing thing. What happened? Well, the timer went off, but I didn't want to quit. <laughs> That's really funny. I wonder why. Yeah, it's like there's power in this book. I was like, yeah, I know. It's kind of crazy. It's like, yeah, I don't even need the timer anymore. It's like, just after a week, huh? Yeah. So go ahead. I challenge you the same way. One minute. You just take one minute. Set a timer. Okay, God, I'm going to give you one minute. Good luck quitting <laughs> at one minute. You're going to experience God in a way you've never experienced him before. Where do you start? Don't start in Revelation. Are you crazy? Don't start in Ezekiel. Don't even start in Genesis. Don't even start in John. John's really technical, real spiritual. It's really hard, very flowery. Start in Galatians. Start in Matthew. Start in Mark. Start in the Psalms. Just start. You're like, Andrew, I don't have a master's degree. I don't feel very comfortable with that. Great. Get a study Bible. ESV study Bible is great. The CSB study Bible is great. If you like devotionals, I encourage the classic one, Oswald Chambers. I believe you have to turn it into heaven when you get in. It's like the ticket to get into heaven. You have to have gone through the Oswald Chambers Bible study uh, devotional time. Oswald Chambers is great. Uh, uh, Timothy Keller is doing some great devotionals right now. He did one on Proverbs recently. It looks really interesting. That's great. But spend some time with him and make sure you're doing it with the word and then pray. I'm going long, by the way. Um, pray for the world, pray for your city, pray for your friends, pray for your family, then pray for you, concentrically, concentric circles. Start with the world, there's plenty to pray for. Pray for your city, pray for your friends, pray for your family, pray for you, right? I'll try and wrap up quickly. Once you start doing that, making it part of a regular part of your life, um, learn, the learn the rhythms. The, 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 the follower of God in the Bible has a rhythm to their life. Uh, when you look at the books of like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus, you see festivals and they're planned. You see Sabbaths and they're planned. You see, um, you see feasts and they're planned. God says, thou shalt party. You need to plan a party, feast, right? You need to plan a time to remember and mourn, festival. You need to plan a time to rest, Sabbath. It's a rhythm. It happens every year. It's the same time, always the same thing. There's a rhythm to it. Why does he have that rhythm there? Because you need rest, because you need to commemorate, because you need to remember, because you need to party, right? You got to do these things. God designed you. He knows you need it. That didn't go away. You still need it. And so in your own life, plan some rhythms to your spiritual walk with God. Plan some rhythms for the mountain. And I know, listen, I know you're on the mountain all the time. You're skiing, you're snowshoeing, you're, you're snowmobiling, you're hiking, you're you're mountain biking. We're doing all the things. This isn't that. This is you going on the mountain 
and saying, I'm not coming down until God says I come down. This is me and God, prayer, patience. This isn't about me getting in a bunch of runs and slipping in a little 15 minutes with God so I can check the box. This is me getting with God, alone with God, being with God, allowing for him to work in my heart, and it's going to become a rhythm of my life. Plan it. Put it on your calendar. That doesn't sound very spiritual. Calendars are very spiritual. Don't take away my calendars, right? Plan it. Talk to your spouse if you're married. Say, honey, is it okay if I take a day on this day? I know you're going to be carrying a lot of weight because you got kids and stuff and all these things, but it looks like there's nothing on the calendar. There's no sporting events. There's nothing I want to miss out on. Is it okay if I take this day and go and get away with the Lord? And she's going to say, or he's going to say, yes, that would be great on this day. And then you go and you execute and you go do it. And God, and let God be God in your life. Now, there'll be times when you need to run, just like Jesus did. There'll be times you need to get away, just like Jesus did. And when those times come, you'll be ready because you've practiced, because you know how to be with the Lord. Let's pray.